All right. Well, last time we were together, and that was two weeks ago, the um, sickness laid our family low last week. So um, we are back. We are healthy. The Lord has sustained us. But last time we looked at Samuel, we looked at 1 Samuel chapter 12. That was the speech of Samuel where he spoke to the children of Israel at the inauguration of Saul and said, look at me, I am righteous, and questioned them to see if that was indeed so. And that being so, he shows the Israelites their sin. And when they have seen their sin and the anger of the Lord against their sin by the miracle that He performed, they turn, they repent, they fear, and they come to God and Samuel gives them the way forward. That is, trusting in the name of the Lord and following Him. And so we ended on somewhat of a positive note. It is not, you're good, it is, follow the Lord. That was what we learned And we saw that this was in the wake of Saul's victory over the Ammonites, right? Nahash had been defeated, and there was deliverance for the people of Israel. Well, there was not complete deliverance. There are still those Philistines. They're quite the enemy. They can muster quite the force. And so we're going to read about the Philistines. And we're going to read chapters 13 and 14 all the way up through verse 46 of chapter 14, which is quite the passage. And so before we read it, I just want to mention to you a framework that might be helpful as we read this rather lengthy passage. And that is that there are, in essence, three kind of cycles that happen throughout this passage. And they all start with Jonathan doing something. And then there's the reaction and the result of that. And then Saul does something. And there's the reaction and result of that. The point being that Jonathan's actions shown are shown to be increasingly good. And Saul's actions are seen to be increasingly bad. I, I shouldn't say necessarily increasingly. The first one is perhaps the worst. But we see this cycle. And so if that is a helpful framework for you, uh, look at the passage as we read it. But also remember that it is the details, it is the content of the Scripture that we're reading that will allow us to apply it to us. So we don't want to impose a framework, but there is that cycle in the text. So with that out of the way, let's start reading in chapter 13 and verse 1. Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the mountains of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent away, every man to his tent. And Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. Now all Israel heard it and said that Saul had attacked a garrison of the Philistines, and that Israel had become an abomination to the Philistines. And the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horses, and the people as sand which is on the seashore in multitude. 
And they came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, then the people hid in caves, in thickets, in rocks, in holes, and in pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and to Gilead. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, Bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. And Saul said, What have you done? And Samuel said, What have you done? Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattered from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, then I said, The Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord commanded him to be commander over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people present with him, about 600 men. Saul, Jonathan, his son, and the people present with them remained in Gibeah of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. Then raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned to the road to Oprah, land of Shual. Another company turned to the road to Beth Horon, and another turned to the road to the border that overlooked the valley of Zeboam toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines had said, lest the Hebrews make swords or spears. But all the Israelites would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each man's plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his sickle. And the charge for a sharpening was a pim for the plowshares, the mattocks, the forks, and the axes, and to set the points of the goads. So it came about on the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found with Saul and Jonathan, his son. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Now it happened one day that Jonathan the son of Saul said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. And Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migram. The people who were with him were about 600 men. Ahijah, the son of Ahiab, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, was wearing an ephod. But the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side, 
and the name of the one was Bozes, and the other was Sinah. The front one faced northward opposite Michmash, and the other southward opposite Gibeah. Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving any, by many or by few. So his armor bearer said to him, Do all of it is in your heart. Go then, here I am with you, according to your heart. Then Jonathan said, Very well, let us cross over to these men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say thus to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and not go up to them. But if they say thus, Come to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has delivered them into our hand, and this will be a sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, Look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden. Then the men of the garrison called Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you something. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan. And as he came after him, his armor bearer killed them. That first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within about half an acre of land. And there was trembling in the camp, in the field and among all the people. The garrison and the raiders also trembled and the earth quaked, so that it was a very great trembling. Now the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and there was the multitude melting away. And they went here and there. So Saul said to the people who were with him, Now call the roll and see who has gone from us. And they had called the roll. Surprisingly, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. And Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For at that time the ark of God was with the children of Israel. Now it happened while Saul talked to the priests that the noise which was in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. So Saul said to the priests, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him assembled, and they went into battle, and indeed every man's sword was against his neighbor, and there was very great confusion. Moreover, the Hebrews who were with the Philistines before them at that time, who went up with them into the camp from the surrounding country, they also joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, all the men of Israel who had hidden in the mountains of Ephraim when they saw, when they heard that the Philistines fled, they also followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle shifted to beth And the men of Israel were distressed that day, for Saul had placed the people under oath, saying, Cursed is the man who ate any food until evening, before I have taken, taken vengeance on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. Now all the people of the land came into a forest, and there was honey on the ground. And when the people had come into the woods, there was the honey dripping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. Therefore he stretched out the end of the rod that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put it to his mouth, and his countenance brightened. Then the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. But Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. 
Look now how my countenance has brightened because I tasted of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies which they found. For now there would have been so much greater slaughter among the Philistines. Now they had driven back the Philistines from Michmash to Ahijah, so the people were very faint. And the people rushed on the spoil and took sheep, oxen, and cattle and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, saying, Look, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. So he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a large stone to me this day. Then Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Bring me here every man's ox and every man's sheep. Slaughter them here and eat, and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. This was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Now Saul said, Let us go down to the Philistines by night and plunder them until morning light, and let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. Then the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. So Saul asked counsel of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you deliver them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come over here, all you chiefs of the people, and know and see what this sin, what this sin was today. For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But not a man among the people answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You be on one side, and my son Jonathan and I will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said to the Lord God of Israel, Give a perfect lot. So Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. And Saul said, Cast lots between my son Jonathan and me. So Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan said, told him and said, I only tasted a little honey with the end of the rod that was in my hand. So now I must die. Saul answered, God do so and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, Saul, said to Saul Shall Jonathan die? who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? Certainly not. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. Then Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Quite the story. And... It is all history, and I know it was a lot of reading, but it is one cohesive story. And that is the reason I wanted to read it all together, because one thing really does lead into the next. And there are three particular verses I want to focus on, upon which this story turns, or three verses that really bring together the essence of what this teaches us. And the first of those you probably have already identified, and that is 13, chapter 13 and verse 14. Before I get into chapter 13 and the narrative there, I will just mention that uh, the first verse of chapter 13 is fraught with difficulties of 
how to understand exactly what time passed and how long Saul reigned. I am content to read Acts and see that Saul, Saul, or Paul says that Saul reigned for 40 years and to say that too much more after that is probably human conjecture. But there is a lot of debate and discussion about it. If you want to talk to that to me about that later, I'd be happy to do it. I'm just not going to address it now. But that detail aside, we get into the narrative of this passage. <clears throat> and so we see that Saul has gathered to himself men, 3,000 men, and a thousand are with Jonathan, his son. Now, Jonathan, his son, attacks and is victorious at Geba. And Israel hears that Saul has won this victory. Why, why Saul and not Jonathan? Well, we'll come to that a little bit later. But the main result of this attack is that the Philistines see the Israelites as a stench, as a scourge, as an abomination upon the land. And so they muster a grand army to defeat them. And this is a grand army. If you'll remember Samuel's history lesson, just one chapter back, he said that Sisera oppressed Egypt. Well, Sisera only had 900 chariots. Philistines have 30,000. Even if that number is just 3,000, it is a massive amount of chariots, 6,000 horses, and troops like the sand of the sea. It's one of those things you get pictures of, you know, what do you think of, of Nazi Germany or something like that with rows of soldiers marching, marching. You know, you look out. I, I'm a Lord of the Rings fan, so I would think of the armies of Mordor. Ooh, ah, ooh. But those depictions aside, this is a grand army. We're not talking about a force that's marginally bigger than Saul's 3,000 men. We're talking about all of the Philistines come out for battle to wipe the Israelites out, to subdue them once and for all. And that's pretty terrifying. And the people are pretty terrified. Even the people who follow Saul, the ones who don't run to the other side of the Jordan, those who follow Saul, they tremble. And what does Saul do? What is Saul's response? Well, his first response is a good effort. He puts in an effort to wait seven days because he remembers, if you reference back to chapter 10 and verse 8, Samuel tells Saul, you shall go down to me to Gilgal and surely I will come to you to offer burnt offerings and make sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait till I come to you and show you what you should do. Well, Saul heard seven days, so he waits seven days. But on the seventh day, Samuel has not shown up. And so what does he do? He says, well, Samuel is just going to offer some sacrifices anyway, so I'm going to offer these sacrifices. The Lord must be appeased. I must supplicate myself before the Lord. I must offer these burnt offerings. It must be done. And so he offers the burnt offering. And it's as soon as these offerings are offered, Samuel shows up. And he walks up to Saul. And Saul doesn't even get to say, Samuel, where were you? Samuel says, what have you done? And Saul explains himself. Look, I'm in a horrible situation. And we can 
sympathize with Saul to a certain extent here, right? We can sympathize with the fact that this is a grand army, that the men are trembling, that the men are melting away day by day. He wakes up and he sees a few less tents, a few less people following him. And day by day they're dwindling, dwindling, dwindling. And Samuel said seven days. It's been seven days. Something must be done. And so he tries to make an excuse for him. And we see that he is trying to do something in what he sees to be a hopeless situation. And so we can sympathize to a certain extent with Paul's distress in this situation. But Samuel does not sympathize with Saul. Samuel instead tells him what we read in verse 14. But your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for Himself a man after His own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over His people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. What was Saul's sin? Why is the dynasty of Saul being stripped from him at this point, well, he broke the command of the Lord. Saul tried to appease God with rituals, with burnt offerings, and with sacrifices. And we see then that when the rubber meets the road, when push comes to shove, when Saul is pressed up, his back against the wall, and all seems hopeless, what does he turn to? doesn't turn to God and saying, God, you are in control and waiting for Samuel and the word of the Lord that accompanies Samuel. He instead says, well, I'm going to figure out something to do. I'm going to make these burnt offerings. He is leaning on his own understanding. And we know that Saul will be replaced by a king, a king after God's own heart. And that king after God's own heart will have a wise son. And that wise son will write this in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. I think you're all familiar. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your paths. And Saul is doing the opposite here. He is not trusting in the Lord with all his what? with all his heart. It doesn't just say trust in the Lord intellectually. It says trust in the Lord with all your heart. Saul did not trust in the Lord. When it came down to it, when his back was against the wall, he trusted his own understanding. Saul did the opposite of what we are commanded to do. And this was in one sense, just one event and just one breaking of the commandment of God. But what did it do? It revealed the contents of Saul's heart. Saul had that good start, right? He was picked among all the people and he stood head and shoulders. He had the best resume. He starts out well. He makes good friends. He has a good public life. He has a good family life. Everything is turning up Saul. But then, when things get bad, when things don't turn up Saul, when they turn up Philistines, 
he says, well, I better figure out a way to get out of this. I better find in my own intellect, in my own way of doing things, a way to do it better than the way that the Lord has told me. And that breaking of the commandment that Saul does because of that reveals his heart. And his heart is far from God. It is on his own understanding. Well, can we learn from this? I think we can. Though it's many centuries ago, this is just as true today, right? How prone are churches to find a different way than the way of the Lord? How prone are we as individuals to, when our backs are against the wall, when nothing is going our way, when there's calamity or struggle or need or terror, when we are trembling and shaking in our boots to say, well, I've, I've done the things the Lord has commanded and it doesn't seem like He's answering my prayers. It doesn't seem like all this waiting on Him is doing anything. That we then start to shift and to lean on our own understanding. And the minute we do that, we turn away from God. We should ask ourselves when we're in these difficult situations, am I trusting in my own understanding or is my heart leaning on the Lord? We can all ask ourselves that in difficult situations. And it does seem to me at least to be a pattern in 1 Samuel so far that a great question that is asked again and again is where does your actions and heart and mind go when things get tough. We asked this about Hannah when things got tough for her. We asked it about the Israelites the first time they fought the Philistines. Remember, they went to the Ark of the Covenant. We asked this question about the Israelites again when they wanted a king instead of God. Where do you go when things get tough? What is your reaction when you have, as it seems, no hope? That's a question that's asked, and Saul answers it. I turn to my own intellect. I turn to the way I think things should be done. And we can learn from this, and we can avoid it. Well, Saul is making excuses and saying that dealing with this situation is more important than obeying God. And Samuel judges Saul for this. And it is the Lord's judgment. Because of Saul's heart condition, Saul is not established. And notice that it is not specifically Saul that is uh, rejected here. That will happen in two chapters. We'll get to that. But, it is the Sauline dynasty that is rejected. He will not establish him as a kingdom forever. He will establish somebody else. He will establish a man after God's own heart. And so, this judgment, this punishment is upon Saul because he did not follow the Lord. And this judgment falls also to the people of Israel. Because their king did not follow the Lord. The people 
are scattered and throughout the rest of the chapter a, a bleak picture is painted where they don't even have a sword or a spear. In fact, even for their plows, they have to go up to the Philistines and have somebody sharpen them. They are hiding in rocks and caves and hills. Saul only has 600 men. And, and one other thing that can get missed because it's a geographical note in nature. But what does Samuel do? Samuel doesn't stay with Saul in Gilgal. He goes up to Gibeah. What does that mean? It means that Saul no longer has the prophet of the Lord with him. That's, to me, a pretty important thing, right? That the prophet of the Lord is no longer staying with Saul and he must turn to a different priest. And we'll see what priest he turns to. Well, things got bad real quick, didn't they? We went from, hey, Saul's not too bad. We're doing pretty good. We're surviving. Hey, Jonathan won a battle. To just nothing. Everybody's running scared. It's only 600 men versus the sand of the sea. Who's going to win? And that's why we get to move on to the next part of our story. And the next part of our story starts with Jonathan. If you're wondering what verse we're going to focus on, it's 14.6. But let's set the scene first. Desolation. Saul and 600 men, only Saul and Jonathan even have a sword or a spear to speak of. And Jonathan is undaunted. He goes out and says, let's go up. He pitches a scheme to his armor bearer about going up to the Philistines. Well, some of the things we need to note about this story, Saul doesn't know that Jonathan is doing this. It is not probably intentionally, but it is a secret thing. These cliffs that Jonathan is to scale are seemingly impossible. Uh, One of the names roughly translates to thorny, and the other cliffs roughly translate to slippery. And I am assured by those who know the geography of Israel that to climb these would involve high-skill rock climbing. And I just went to Yosemite, so I know a thing or two about the difference between hiking or walking up a nice path where things are laid out and rock climbing. Rock climbing is a lot scarier. It It's seemingly impossible that there's this face of rock and somehow you're able to finale your way up there. And uh, Jonathan is undaunted by this too. He has to navigate. And he is contrasted with Saul. What is Saul doing? He's resting either in the pomegranate cave or by the pomegranate tree. Either either way, it sounds like a kind of nice, restful, cool place to be. Saul is resting. Jonathan is scheming for the Lord. And there's one other detail that the writer puts in here, and I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't mention it. And that's who the priest with Saul is now. Remember, I just mentioned that Samuel had left. Who's the priest with Saul now? Well, it's a descendant of Eli. Descendant of 
Eli. What do we know about Eli's line? Well, the priestly line of Eli has been rejected. Ichabod's brother, remember Ichabod? He was the one who said his name means the glory has departed from Israel. And I can't help but think that the writer didn't put this in to just remind us and and contrast again. Like, here is the king whose reign has been rejected with the priest whose line has been rejected. And they're sitting around under the pomegranate tree. But what does Jonathan do? He wants to do something for the Lord. And that, with the scene set, is where we get to verse 6. Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. This is Jonathan's attitude, and this is the reason that Jonathan is doing something different than Saul is. Do you wonder what Saul should have been thinking in the last chapter? I think he should have been thinking what Jonathan was thinking right now. The Lord can save by many or by few. Gideon needed what? 300? The Lord can do whatever He wants to do. This is the view of Jonathan. And so even though the Israelites look even worse off than they were in the last chapter, and even though it's just Jonathan against the whole Philistine army, he says, let's go up. And it doesn't matter to Jonathan what the numbers are. The Lord can work. And so let's, let's, let's dig into Jonathan's words. He says, it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. What faith in God that He is so powerful that He can do whatever He wants. That's the first aspect of Jonathan's faith is faith in the power of God, Yahweh, the God of the universe. He created it all. He can do whatever. He's saved before. He will save again. Isn't that wonderful? But also notice the perhaps. Or in this translation, the it may be. It may be that the Lord will deliver. He doesn't presume upon the Lord. Don't we know too many in this day who presume upon the Lord? Who would say, my faith will heal me. My faith will fix my problems. I know that God is good and so He's going to be good to me in this situation. But faith, true faith, recognizes the freedom of God to do His will. Dale Ralph Davis says it this way, Faith recognizes its degree of ignorance and knows that it has not read a transcript of the divine decrees for most situations. All this, however, does not cancel, but enhances its excitement. Jonathan is excited because the Lord can do whatever He wants to. And so he says, why should we not put ourselves at the disposal of the Lord? We 
cannot presume upon the Lord. We cannot go out and say, because I did this, Lord, You must save or You must work or You must change. But we can have a faith that recognizes how grand the Lord is, how powerful He is, and says with this same excitement, let us put ourselves at the disposal of the Lord that He might use us. Let us be bold. Let us go up. Let us see what the Lord would have us to do. And so Jonathan goes up. Now, he has a sign from the Lord, and I have not figured out how he knew that this sign was the sign. Uh, But we have a very sure sign in the words of the Lord given to us in Scripture. And so I think we need not look for signs like this in our own lives. We have the sign of the Scripture. But Jonathan receives this sign. The Philistines kind of mockingly say, Oh, look, one of the people popped up from their caves. Come up. We'll show you a thing or two. That sounds very, very haughty, very presumptuous. And Jonathan and his armor bearer, they scale or shimmy or however they get around and up these cliffs and they get up to them and they fall before them. And Jonathan, as it were, is is knocking them down and his armor bearer is coming along and finishing them off. It's kind of gruesome. Twenty men in half an acre. And they're killed. But that's just the start. Because it's only 20 men. But it causes this great confusion in the camp of the Philistines. The Philistines are frightened and they start to try and rally. And as it says, each man's sword was against his neighbor. And this is uh, to be interpreted, every Philistine sword was against his neighbor. They were in confusion. They were fighting each other. And again, picture the sands of the sea that we were talking about. And now imagine what happens if somebody's boot goes into those sands. It's just chaos everywhere. And we see this chaos, this great chaos. We see people fleeing. We see the people who were turning to the Philistines and allying with them then turning on the Philistines because the tides have turned. And we hear Saul hearing this commotion and rushing in. And they didn't have any weapons. But you know what? They were able to find them on the ground because the Philistines had killed each other. And so they take up the weapons and they chase the Philistines and they defeat them and they drive them back. And what is the conclusion of this thing? We find it in verse 23. So the Lord saved Israel that day and the battle shifted to beth The Lord saved Israel that day. We shouldn't leave this passage without reminding ourselves that it's the Lord who saved. As great as the faith of Jonathan was, and as wonderful that a picture of faith that is for us, faith did nothing. It was all of God. Now, the Lord used that. And the Lord used Jonathan. But verse 23 tells us plain and clear, the Lord saved Israel that day. 
The story is not about, oh, Jonathan is a great guy. It's once again about how the Lord saves his people despite even her king. The Lord saves, and that is a wonderful thing. Are we not blessed to read of those who are able to participate in the Lord's salvation? Well, we got happy again, didn't we? The Lord saved. The Lord delivered. And predictably, as, as these things come, well, then we get verse 24. And the men of Israel were distressed that day. Now, we need to clarify something. Up till verse 23 gives us kind of the, the broad conclusion of this narrative. And then 24 and onward is going to go back to the details of that day, kind of like a postscript, which is going to give us the details, the blow-by-blow, as it were, of this day and the following night. And so that's what we see in verse 24. The men of Israel were distressed that day. Why were they distressed? Why was this great victory turning into a great distress? For Saul had placed the people under oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. First thing, right out the gate, to note about this passage, what does Paul use? He uses his own personal pronouns. Now, pronouns are a subject I'm not getting into, but but in a different sense, personal pronouns. What is Paul saying? My vengeance. My victory. Me, me, me. What does he not say? Well, he doesn't say what Jonathan said. What did Jonathan say? It may be that the Lord will deliver us. What does Paul want by initiating this curse? My vengeance. Don't you see the contrast here? The Lord versus me. The Lord versus me. And that sets the whole trajectory for the rest of this passage and explains if some of the details are a little bit fuzzy, what the point of this passage is going to be driving at. And so let's just briefly walk through the events of this passage and then we'll draw some conclusions. But Saul's reaction to the Philistine confusion seems a little bit boggled from the start. He doesn't doesn't seem to do the right things at the right times. He, He hears a great commotion and he says, well, let's count the people. Apparently that's when you do when there's a great commotion in the enemy camp. But he counts the people. He finds that Jonathan isn't there. And then he calls the priests together, but then he hears even more commotion. He's like, no, no, no. All right, cut that off. We're going to go fight. And then he makes the people swear this oath. People swear, or he places the people under this curse. And he places the people under this curse, and then they go off and they fight. And this curse causes two things. The first thing that this curse causes is exhaustion. And it is notable that um, the distance from, and I'm forgetting the um, exact cities, but um, when the, the distance between where the 
Philistines started the confusion and where they were chased to is 20 miles. 20 miles, that's a long distance to run without food. I, I couldn't run that distance with food. But that is, that is quite understandable that the Israelites with no notice have been charged not to eat and then told to run most of a marathon. The people were faint. There's exhaustion. They are, they are just not able to pursue those Philistines like they would have been. Jonathan tells us this, right? In verse 30, How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they found. They found good food, and they had to turn it away. I, I would challenge any one of us to have to run laps in our gym while the back-to-back food was set up, and then just to let it sit there where we were forced to run laps and run laps and run laps. Can you imagine having to pass up all that good food and instead run, 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 run? Why? Because some leader wants personal glory? Oh. Well, I'm being a little bit dramatic about it, but this is what's happening. The exhaustion was real. And so this leads to sin or to transgression of the law. The people in verse 33 are sinning against the Lord by eating the blood. What happens is they understand the curse. Except for Jonathan. They understand the curse and so they finally, the sun has set. They are free to eat. And what do they do? They grab the nearest animal and they tear into it just to get something to eat. And it's sinful because the Lord has commanded the people not to eat of the blood. Well, the other transgression that is committed because of this oath is Jonathan's. Jonathan dips his staff in the honeycomb and eats of it and is therefore under the curse of Saul, though Saul does not know it. And the result of this transgression is that when Saul asks for the blessing, the priest suggests that they ask for the blessing of the Lord before they go do their night plundering. And Saul agrees and he asks for the blessing and the Lord doesn't answer. And so Saul thinks the people have sinned. And so he takes yet another oath Verse 39, he takes another oath. For others the Lord lives who saves Israel. Now he knows who saves Israel. Though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. I don't know if this is Paul being jealous of Jonathan or this is Paul setting up Jonathan as it could never be Jonathan, but even if it was, I would kill him. Well, if that's true, this is filled with arrogance and irony, is it not? He swears an oath that even his own son he will kill because of his rash oath. He doubles down. And what happens? We have this thing, this drama unfold of the Israelites not being willing to admit their own guilt because they weren't. Jonathan had transgressed the curse. 
but they didn't even want to turn Jonathan over. And so Paul puts them on one side and him and Jonathan on the other, and he and Jonathan are selected by Lot. And then who is selected by Lot? It's Jonathan, and he confronts Jonathan. And Jonathan says, it was me. I ate some honey, and now I must die. I I would be scared to be under Saul's reign, wouldn't you not? To think that an oath that you didn't hear could sentence you to death because you did what? You ate some honey while you were defeating the enemies of the Lord. Well, the people won't have it. Saul says, you'll surely die. As the Lord lives. And the people say, no. Jonathan will not die. And so the people ransom Jonathan. They, as it were, hold a vote of no confidence in Saul. And he is less disgraced. And what's the final kicker? He doesn't even get to fulfill his oaths. He doesn't get to fulfill his oath. He is an oath breaker at the end of it. Because he so quickly went down the road of wanting what was his and the glory and the honor. Well, what are we to learn from this? What are we to learn from Saul's spiral, as it were? Well, we see that in the first place that Saul's pride gives rise to this rash vow. And I've already mentioned that it is Saul saying, me, my, I, my victory, you know, we're doing this, we're doing this for my honor. And versus Jonathan saying, it may be that the Lord will work for us. Saul wants to save Israel by himself, not have Israel saved by the Lord. And we see a contrast here between Paul, sorry, between Saul in chapter 13 and Saul in chapter 14. Because what does Saul not do in chapter 13? He doesn't obey the command of the Lord. In chapter 14, he sets up his own rules, his own curse and commandment. And we see how quickly man-made rules, particularly those made by someone in authority, and those that are made alongside the commands of God, how quickly those degenerate into sin and discord. We call this legalism, don't we? We call this legalism, taking the rule of man and making it as if it were alongside the commands of the Lord. And we can note that Saul shows a lot of the signs of legalism. He doesn't actually want to obey God's commands. We saw that in chapter 13. He instead wants man's commands. He makes his own decrees. He wants to be his own man. He doesn't want to be God's man. This is often the way it goes. And, and we see this. We see Paul tell us that this is, this is bad. That instead of following the commands of God, they want to heap on rules of their own. We think of the Judaizers or the super apostles. Those who would add to the law of God. And we see Saul's disgrace. We see that the people turn against him. 
how different this is than 1 Samuel 11 and verse 13. And I'll read that again. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. Isn't that so so different from where we stand now? Saul is saying, Nobody's going to be put to death because the Lord's accomplished salvation. Just a couple of chapters later, I'm going to put this person to death because he didn't follow my curse. How far Saul has fallen in just just a chapter and a half when it is revealed that when push comes to shove, again, the heart of Saul is not with the Lord. It is on his own things. <coughs> and the Israelites really realized it wasn't clear at first, was it, that Jonathan was doing the good things and Saul was doing the bad. Saul was riding high, as it were, at the beginning. But at the end of this passage, we see the Israelites really recognize. No, Jonathan, your son, was in the right. The Lord accomplished salvation through him. You were in the wrong. You made this curse. Shall we not? Shall we put Jonathan to death, even though he has accomplished the relation of the Lord? Certainly not. And it becomes clear that Saul is not really worthy of being king, doesn't it? You read all this, and how can you think that Saul is really worthy of being king? Who is maybe worthy of being king? Jonathan, right? I mean, if you want a king. You want Jonathan at this point. We don't even know David yet. You want Jonathan. What's the tragedy wrapped up in that? That the first thing that we talked about was that Saul's line would not continue. Saul will not have a dynasty. Jonathan will never be king because of Saul. And there are two things, very briefly, but two things I want to dig out from this. The first is the seriousness of the sin of Saul, the seriousness of the sin of the father, that he has taken away the opportunity of the son. I'm not going to comment too much on that. That's for another time. But the second is the way in which our human minds are programmed to think that, oh, well, if Jonathan's good, Saul's bad, then John should, God should just swap, right? He should just get rid of Saul and put Jonathan there. And that's not what God is going to do. And so once again we see God is not going to do what our human mind, what our human intellect, what our human thoughts would say God should do. God is going to do something different. And this brings us right back to that faith that Jonathan had. It may be that the Lord will deliver. Whatever comes, it is of the Lord, and I'm going to trust in Him. And so, we might be tempted to view Jonathan as a tragedy of the king that never got to be. But Jonathan will not view himself like that. He will continue to be a friend to David, the usurper. He will continue to be faithful to the Lord. And he will continue to serve the Lord until he is ultimately killed on the battlefield with Saul and his brothers.
Well, we would look at that and say, "Oh, what a what a waste! He didn't he didn't get to fulfill his potential. He didn't get to take over and show what he was." But God rather writes down for us, records for us in Scripture, Jonathan's faithfulness, and so we have this wonderful picture of faithful Jonathan contrasted with the unfaithful Saul. And we may learn thereby. And finally, we look from Saul to Christ. And most of the time, when we look at types in the Old Testament, we look at people like Samuel, right? We've been looking at how Samuel, in some ways, is this shadow and type of Christ and him being this prophet and him bringing salvation. Just physical, not ultimate. We know that. It's a type. But Saul gives us a different angle. Saul shows us what Jesus is not. How does he do this? He shows us that when Saul is faced with hardship, that he buckles and turns and goes against God. He doesn't marginally fail. He really fails. Well, what does Christ do in comparison? He obeys, was obedient, what? To the point of death, even the death on the cross. Saul, as if it were set up to be king, but he will not follow the will of God when things get tough. He will turn to himself. Jesus follows the will of God to the cross, to death, to die. Jesus is also this king. When the Lord desires a man after his own heart, who is the ultimate fulfillment of the man after God's own heart? It is the God-man. It is Jesus. And so Saul will not be king forever. In contrast, Jesus will be king forever. And so when we look at this passage, we see that Jesus answers all of these roles and problems in a perfect way, completely different from the worldly king that we have seen here. And so as we turn and we look to Jesus, we see a true and good fulfillment of what it means to be obedient to God and what it means to be a true king. And then just an application to the heart. Because Samuel really does say to Saul, the reason that you're losing your reign is because you do not have a heart after God. And when Jesus looks at Christians, He looks at your heart. Saul does a lot of stuff good, but God looks at the heart. And that's the reason Saul will never be a success. Because God looks at the heart. And so when we, today, all these centuries later, ask, where does God look? He looks at the heart. And we know that that heart must be having true faith in Jesus Christ, the one who came 
who was obedient, who died, and now sits at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for those who trust in him. All right. May God bless this.